All right. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks for the invitation. I was,、uh, you know, very. I, I know when we first connected, you were like, "What are we going to talk about?" <laughs> And I, I hope to to you know I appreciate you taking the time to chat with a dumb dummy like me.、Um, my disclaimer is definitely in the title of the show.、Um, so, but I'm I'm very interested by these things. So, before we get into the world of computer science and how it is literally evolving our world right before our eyes.、Um, Tell people, you know, who you are. Give a little bit of your background because you are very credentialed. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, so I'm Ilke. Ilke Demir. I know it is like a hard name,、uh, but、uh, it's like like, but Ilke. <laughs> I am a research scientist at Intel right now.、Um, I my research involves like generative models, 3D geometry,、uh, 3D reconstruction,、um, like. Anything that you can think in the、uh, intersection of、um, computer vision and, and artificial intelligence.、Um, so I did my PhD at Purdue,、uh, PhD and、uh, masters in Purdue. And before that, I was in Turkey doing my bachelor's in Middle East Technical University、uh, in computer science um, and uh, life. And now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you? What did was school? What brought you from Turkey to the states? Right, right.、Yeah. Um, I um, so even in my undergrad, I was really interested in robotics, computer vision, and how we can like make machines see and like interact and even feel.、Um, so.、Uh, For that, I applied to many PhD programs, and my advisor in Purdue, he was like the best in his domain.、Um, he was like doing all those crazy stuff about like um, um,、uh, projective camera systems, like appearance editing, 2D reconstruction, and I'm like, yes, I want to work in that domain. So、um, I applied. I applied for a PhD in Purdue, and I got admitted, and、um, like for what master, and I got my masters on the way.、Um, it was like a direct PhD program master after、uh, undergrad.、Um, so yeah, that's why I came to US. So what 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 led you to, you know, because technology has moved so quickly. Like, did you know that like this was what's going to be on the cutting edge of like our future and and how it's developing society? Or, you know, what was your interest in heading into this field in these fields in particular? I think. Even from childhood, you have some vision about what you want to do. Like when I was very small, we were like doing those little surgeries on phones or radios <laughs> with my dad. Like just opening something electronic,、yeah. looking inside, and like cables, etc., and then closing it, and hopefully it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>、um, so in that. In that, in that, even in that, like small age, you have ever you have something like、oh, I, I'm interested. In that. I can, I can, I can pursue this. And then I, uh, I um, got introduced to coding during high school, and I'm like, yes, I want, like, I want to build things like this. And this is very, like, the algorithmic approach to to life is actually very, like. Something really resonated with me,、um, and after that, like as I said during my undergrad, I got into robotics, and in that in that case,、um, the research lab that I was、uh, involved in was doing swarm robotics. So how like assume like ants move together and. Program and coordinate together, right?、Mm. How can robots can coordinate and move together and like do something together? So that was like what they were working on at that time. And I'm like, yes, like this will this will be something really cutting edge. I want to work <laughs> on this. Like, how do they see around? How do they understand us? Can we interact with them, etc. So that was what got me motivated in that. Interesting. 
So you touched on something there, the, the AI that, that is, I find very fascinating. And I think most people are not aware of how much we're already dependent on AI. Yeah. But I'm also sort of terrified of, you know, the, the Skynet, the Terminator whole situation, you know, occurring or, or just as like, I think we, we can see where, you know, algorithms can bring, could be used to bring out the best, or it could be used to bring out the worst. And I don't know if that's something that we can control through, through the algorithm, or if it's really just up to humanity to, you know, because I, you know, I, I hear oftentimes where people will search and they're like, well, I keep getting in this feedback loop. And it's like, well, whatever you're searching for is generally what the algorithm feeds you back. You know, generally sure. speaking, it probably narrows down the variety versus the old school days when you would search and you would get random stuff from all over the place. Maybe that, the feedback loop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, are we, are we, what's our future with, with AI, you know, and, and because it seems like, it seems like, we're at a very interesting point where I think we need to start. We haven't thought about these or people like you obviously have been thinking about them, but I think the general public hasn't been until very, very recently. Yeah. Yeah. So um, actually a Turkish magazine asked me to write an article for general public, not a scientific article um, for understanding how AI can use and benefiting from emotions of people. Mm. And at the end, like we iterated on it. And at the end, the title became something like um, the test of AI with em emotions and um, humans with ethics. So these two were correlated so much that um, whatever AI is like AI is applied on, it's applied on data, and data has its own properties, on uh, biases, on systematic things that it collects from humans that create the data, that manipulate the data, that uh, gather the data or regulate the data, and because of that, um, whatever the AI is learning, it's learning from humans and the bad things that human carry uh, is contagious with, with the data to AI systems. For example, probably like everyone remembers, there was a bot that was um, um, trained on everything on Twitter, some, something yeah. like that. And with some iterations, it became a really like racist, bad bot that is like swearing and stuff, right? And that is something maybe, um, because you may, you may say that it was not because the data had bad intentions, but data was not like regulated, was not filtered, etc. But on the other hand, this is like a maybe like a careless example. But on the other hand, there are some other um, um, systems. For example, um, in some cases, AI is trying to de decide the shifts of people in the workforce in a way that um, it is optimizing people. Maximal efficiency. Absolutely. And it's not like people are machines. You cannot try to optimize people. I mean, you can try to optimize, I don't know, like maybe, maybe the wage or maybe sometimes, but you cannot say that, oh, okay, this person is best at like this, this, this. So as a machine, he will come this time, leave this time. Like he can work nine hours. Let's make it happen. Like it doesn't work like that. Right. Like you 
the, any AI systems or any systems that are built on AI should not forget that human component or that humane component or component of those systems. So, yes, there are some beautiful scenarios like with like <laughs> automatic navigation, driverless cars, yeah. like beautiful world. And there are some dystopian scenarios where uh, instead of AI being a tool for humanity, humans being the um, slaves of AI. And um, again, both of them comes from the motivation of people and people in charge, people with power, people that has decide this deciding authorities and those you're, you're filling me with all kinds of confidence <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah um we need to be aware of that like ai systems by themselves are not harmful um the way e either like the reckless way or like over-optimized way by power mm. are making what ai in a dystopian future and if you remember, like one of the examples that we you may have some uh, examples um, is that um, the deepfakes, for example. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 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 also you know, this is also something I definitely want to touch on, you know, talk about with you is the deepfakes, because already I think regardless of where you stand on any position, Misinformation is all over the place and it is becoming increasingly difficult. I mean, I see comedians using this deep fake technology right now and it's like, oh, it's funny. Like I'm not overly concerned, but I'm also sitting here going like, this is where it's at right now for a comedian to use. Mm -hmm. Like how long before it's completely like you cannot tell at all that there's a difference and that just adds to the whole misinformation and accusations and the whole turmoil of, of our society, it seems right. like. How how can, what is the purpose of, of deep fake is, it, because to me right now, I, just, I see it as, as entertaining, you know, being used by comedians and so forth. But uh, the downside of it seems quite large potentially. Right, right. So um, in research community, yeah. it first emerged for um, like, these AR VR systems or like uh, when you want some new content based on all content, but in a like a reenactment way, like facial reenactment way. Um, so like you have your avatar in, uh, I don't know, in, in, in your VR headset and you want it to talk like you, right? And that is facial uh, reenactment. So whatever, however your lips are moving in the real world, you want your avatar to move lips like that or look wherever you are looking, etc. So that was that innocent first use of deepfakes, not even deepfakes, maybe like 3D blend shapes or like some other word for deepfakes um, in, in, in that world. But then um, it got more transferable, not only in 3D, but in 2D. What I mean by 2D are images and videos. Mm -hmm. Then 3D is like more 3D models or we are like the, how we are digitized in, in VR world, AR world. Um, so in 2D, um, and with the proliferation of deep learning systems and deep learning is like complex machine learning systems where you have many layers uh, to learn a task. Um, and before those deep learning approaches were, were, were really available and um, so much high quality data, um, it wasn't that much possible. But with uh, deep learning systems and especially like generative adversarial networks, GANs, that's like 
the the thing in in research world. <laughs> so um, so after GANs came, deepfakes bloomed. Like you can like transfer everything, reanimate everyone. Like um, there is that target and source, and you can like manipulate any any image like that. So then it became like more indistinguishable from. Like, you know, like Photoshop was there all the yeah, time, right? Like yeah. why people wasn't weren't doing this with Photoshop, but with deep learning systems, right? Um, of course, like with blending and Photoshop, it was always like some artifacts, some boundaries, or like some missynchronized uh, lip sync, etc. But um, with deep learning, it became much, much more real, photorealistic. So that's why our eyes, as our natural detectors of authenticity, are actually being like um, out of the context. Like you cannot trust your eyes anymore. So that's unfortunately where it is going. <laughs> so, is, so is the concept of deep learning then, is it kind of where what is being learned here is then moving from this point and accumulating more data and then building on top of the previous one instead of going all the way back to the first one to add it on to it just continues to add it as it gains information and evolve there are different there are different systems um what you say is possible you first uh, train on whatever that data you have and the more data you have you can retrain 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 and then your deep learning system is actually much more um hopefully generalizable and much more um, um accurate um there are other ways for example um like there is reinforcement learning um that may be a little bit less data de dependent but more award dependent so so assume you have a robot, you want the robot to always grab something correctly and the uh, grabbing like the award function is actually being able to hold it, let, let's say five seconds or not. Okay. So the robot tries it, tries it, tries this way, tries that way, tries, 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 tries. At some moment with some movement, it will be able to grab it. Then it, it uh, optimizes like, oh, can I hold it like five seconds? Can I just touch it? Can I like two seconds, etc. So that is more less dependent on it still requires data but it more depends on experience than more data and of course that's not like you cannot train every system with reinforcement learning if you don't have that um, specific award function interesting interesting so it sounds like deep fake got its origins in like video games and and maybe and and in virtual reality development for entertainment purposes probably originally yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's how I think about it is like the rendering of a of a video game sort of, except it's uh, in a much different, uh, more realistic fashion, obviously. So, what can we what can we do to like to protect ourselves? Is there is there anything we can do to protect ourselves? I guess is the question, right? I was actually secretly wishing for this question. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, we can actually, um, just as we can develop those generate, generate generative models, uh -huh. we can actually build detectors, detective models or models that are doing detection for deepfakes. So we actually built the world's first um, real-time deepfake detector, um, and it is running on an optimized pipeline uh, on top of a fake catcher model that we trained. So um, you can upload a video, and at each... Mm, one second to two seconds, it says like fake with 80% confidence, fake with 70% confidence, real with 90% confidence, etc. So not um, 
it doesn't even need to be the whole video, but every couple of seconds it outputs whether it is real or fake. And um, you can trust that because it's like, um, so there are different deepfake de 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 detectors, but our detector, which is fake catcher, is actually looking at um, the blood change. So as, as humans, um, our heart pumps blood and because of that our veins change color like we cannot see like looking at like this to our vein <laughs> but we, um, computationally when there's a video of you there's very subtle changes that you can amplify in wow. videos yeah so we are actually tracing those color changes um for people that wants to um, research more. It's called PPG signals, photoplatysmography. Um, so those signals... PPG, PPG signals. PPG okay. signals, yes. Photoplatysmography. I am proud that I can say it in one. <laughs> I'll let you say it and I'll say PPG. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those PPG signals... Um, can be extracted from the video. And for real people, like, I don't know, our video, um, our, our PPG signals are like heart rate. They are like sinusoidal, periodical, you know, like the ones that you see on those beeping machines. Normal pattern or rhythm. Exactly. Um, following your heart rate. It can be low or high, but still like following your heart rate. For fake videos, it's everywhere. There is no periodicity. There is no uniformity. Like maybe the heart rate is like, 50 going to 200 and coming back to 40, something like that. Interesting. So, this is a simplified version, but we actually look at uh, the correlation of those signals from many places on your face. Um, we have like 32 grid cells that we extract those PPGs from. And then we look at their both temporal and spectral consistency to, um, to understand whether, it's, whether it is fake or not. And we actually uh, feed those signals to a deep learning system so that it is also like not just based on like computation but it's also learning um, about like different fakes different illuminations different contexts so that's how you can actually battle against deep fakes so it sounds like are you in you so you're involved in the technology that helps deep fakes exist do i understand that correct yes sort of um, exists I haven't built one by myself, right. but for detection, you're, yes. You're kind of in. Okay, okay. So is so is the answer to just continue to make better and better detectors as the fakers get better and better as well? We're just going to be on a perpetual ramping up. Uh, yeah. So in any conversation, there is always this um, arms race coming up. Um, we do better detectors. They do better generators, you know. Um, so one thing that I actually trust is I we keep finding more and more human signals, like biological or physio physiological signals. For example, after this PPG signals, one thing that we look was the gaze and eye direction. Mm. So um, wherever we look, like this, right, like our gaze vectors actually converge, oops, sorry, converge at a yeah. point. Um, whether it is very far, they are actually coplanar, right? Like those two like arrows going Straight. from, yes, they uh. are coplanar they are not like this but yeah. for fakes they are like that so we also like use that in another detector and we found out that it's like giving high accuracy uh information about whether uh we can detect 
defects by their gaze signals. And there are many others. They, like I know not our group, but another group is looking corneal refractions. So if there is a light source coming from here, there's a reflection in my eyes, right? Yeah. And the consistency of these in two eyes actually gives up whether it is fake or not. So there are many of those signals that we can incorporate, incorporate into um, the deep detectors, um, just as I said, uh, in fake catcher. That's interesting. You know, I don't, you don't really pay attention. I think most people don't really pay attention to these details, though. I think that's the problem. Like you obviously pay attention to these details. I think the average person doesn't. I think I have a pretty good eye for these sorts of things, <laughs> but obviously I probably get, get fooled at, at times as well. Um, yeah, I, so what can the average person, so you have this detector, is this detector just available online for the average person to use? Is that, um, is, or, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we are in conversations about make it uh, happen um, online publicly available. Interesting. Um, so what would somebody do? They would, they would say they, they find a video of, of something online and, mm -hmm. and they would just put in a URL of that video or whatever, and it would analyze it? Ideally, yes. Ideally, we will just like get the uh, link and uh, we will start like in the system, we start streaming and after one or two uh, um, seconds of streaming, there is the confidence and the fake or real signal, um, fake or, or real uh, label going there. And of course, like the detector uh, based on the confidence may be um, incorrect for some rare uh, seconds, or it may be too correct for some seconds. So we also have that video label that is accumulating towards, uh, acc accumulating on all the segments that we process. So if it is like fake, 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 real fake, 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 of course the video will be fake and you can see it there. And there may be some edge cases. So we have a formulation about how we can aggregate all of those results using log of odds in some like algorithmic way. Um, so we actually accumulate all of those um, segment labels into a video label and that is also available there. So it sound does does it get more accurate the longer it runs? Is that the way? The, yes. The, so more accuracy the longer the video um, runs? Based on the assumption that the video is totally fake or totally real. So if you remember, there was uh, some fakes where... Um, uh, someone was mimicking Tom Cruise. <laughs> so just those um, uh, those intervals where the person was like mimicking Tom Cruise, they actually applied a defect of Tom Cruise. So the face was switching in between. In that case, it's like three seconds fakes, two seconds real, three seconds fake, two seconds real, something like that. So in that cases, uh, we also like find those segments and we output and at the end, uh, of course, it's a hybrid video. So even for hybrid videos, we provide those like per segment uh, confidences and oh, wow. per labels, yeah. That's very specific. <laughs> so how does how does all this, so we've talked about sort of the the way that deepfake is evolving, sort of how we can combat it a little bit. Um, what, um, where does this all lead on the exciting part of this with like, virtual reality and and 3D and things like that because you know I haven't been to to one of these 3D immersive gaming environments mm -hmm. yet but I hear they have really developed uh, quite 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 quickly 
Um, and I think it's only going to get better. And I keep thinking that we're only a matter of time before we're all ready player one and we're ready to go. <laughs> um, is that where we're potentially headed? Is it going to be that that crazy, that realistic? I well, mean, hopefully. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg's trying to sell everyone on this meta thing, which I'm yeah. a little skeptical on, just <laughs> to be honest. But what is your what is your thoughts on 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 Facebook in particular trying to kind of I don't know. It's all, I, it almost feels like they're trying to corner the the. I guess it is called the metaverse, right? Like the the non non visual computer world. Um, I think so. As a researcher, um, I mean, as a scientist, like we have been stuck in this two D world for a long time. I really think that the world is our world is three D. So how we um, simulate how we interact, how we communicate. Everything can be lifted to that digital 3D world instead of digital 2D world. And many aspects in digital 2D world we cannot do, but in digital 3D world we can. Like just just um, from the very simple fact that when you are watching something 2D, you are stuck with your with, with the view of the camera. You cannot look like right. this or look like this. But in 3D world, I can look around. It's like my own camera, my own point of view. Just like very simple facts like this, really. Like we are programmed to live in 3D and how we digitize the world should be in 3D. Now, going to that metaverses or like virtual universes, um, that has been on the table for many like scientific, science fiction. Um, Long time. Um, yeah, like no many science fiction art and like many books and things like we always see movies and that is like either like facebook says it or i don't know magic leap says it says it <laughs> like whoever says it it will happen and we are like especially with the deep learning approaches it's a very parallel uh, development especially for uh, deep learning where we have more computational um, um, control over the 3d world um, it's getting more possible like um I'm not saying so. <laughs> uh, I actually worked at Facebook um, like uh, several years ago and I was in Oculus uh, looking at like all these like um, human understanding in, in 3D world. Like where do we look? How do we interact? Or like how do we move our head? Um, so even from that time, I know that like um, like these deep learning systems are really, really useful in such settings because if I want to say like render something and I know where I will be looking, like if I'm looking like this in a, in a straight line and if, if the system actually predicts that the next point that I will be looking at is here, I can actually render based on that um, before even the uh, user looks there. So that's how like deep learning and such like computational systems are going hand in hand with virtual reality and augmented reality development. Now, for recreating and digitizing the whole world, um, there are several capture systems uh, in, in different comp uh, companies. Um, some of them, and most of them are like kind of one person or two people. Um, like this room, there are like many, many cameras everywhere. Right. Uh, it's either they are capturing simultaneously or there are some structured lights so that they can capture the 3D information. And you can, your digital twin, can live in that whatever universe, whatever virtual universe there is um, after you get that capture system. 
Now, in contrast, in Intel Studios, which was world's largest um, uh, 3D capture stage, uh, it's 10,000 uh, square feet of a dome with 100 cameras all around, and it is capturing whatever inside there in 3D with 100 synchronous uh, cameras. And it is bringing like 270 gigabytes of data per second. Just imagine it. For what, are, what are we doing with all this data? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't think people realize how much data we are creating. And it it's not like the internet is just floating in the air. Like it's all on server somewhere, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you process all that data? How do you make meaning of that data? How do you actually visualize all of them, store all of them, process all of them, and build AI systems on top of that, right? <laughs> um, so... In each uh, phase of processing that data, we actually need AI systems because you cannot just store like that much raw data without any understanding of that data. Right. But if you actually, um, if I use that data, for example, to build your 3D model, and I can just store your 3D model and all the possible uh, movements and deformations and things that you can do with that 3D model instead of... Uh, storing every second of every frame of every camera, right? So that's how like AI is super useful uh, for cleaning, for processing, for segmenting, for um, converting into and converting all of that data into a representation that we can process later and later and later. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like we're going to be more and more dependent on AI as things move forward, e even more so. Um, I mean. Is is there from from a from someone who understands it so thoroughly? Is there a good a good way or uh, for us to implement it that it'll be you know have a positive results or it, are there steps that we can take you know I don't know as individuals as the government maybe should take or as this continues to evolve to ensure that it. Well, maybe not ensure is the right word, but to hopefully have it result in a positive, you know, result on on society. Yeah, um, this is a really important and um, impactful question. So, at every so first of all, there are some research products, right? Like we are trying to see if it works, how it works, like how can we make something new, and those research products can exist may exist with their biases or with their i don't know unfiltered data or because they are in the research world they are not um, impacting any lives directly but when ai systems are going into deployment um, like deciding on the jobs as i said before deciding on productivity deciding on um who can pass in the intersection in the traffic right you know like when those ai systems are being deployed into real world where it can impact lives, um, there should be strict rules about who is deciding the rules of that AI system, who is gathering the data, um, is the data um, diverse enough, is the data representative enough, is it, um, can it cover all the populations? Um, for example, if you are doing eye tracking, um, you can and, and if you are develop, like, uh, deploying that eye tracking into uh, like um, um, complete system where 
many people will in interact with it. You cannot say that, oh, like this works for 98% of the population, but for the 2% of the population with eye diseases, we have no solution. You cannot have that. Right. For the research product, you can write in the paper, limitations. We haven't tried it on people <laughs> with eye diseases, right? But for the deployment, you can't do that. So. There is actually a systematic way to like one, there are several ways, but one of the systematic ways that you can specify and um, um, reg not regulate, but like um, give information about those systems is, um, a, it is actually, it was, um, so it was a it was a system that was built before, but I think the paper just recently came out. If I am not mistaken, I hope I'm not mistaken. It's um, called data sheets for data sets, and um, uh, I hope I'm I I am not uh, giving incorrect information. But as far as I remember, um, Timnit Gebru and uh, her co-authors are um, the main developers of of that idea. So for that. Data sheets for data sets, you actually specify all of those like um, edge cases, like those limitations, how the data was gathered, what does the AI system actually uh, first developed, uh, what was the intention behind that AI system, what can be the limitations, is it um, um, tested on the whole population or was the data set biased because of something else? Um, you know, even like the like if you go back, like the first um, Google Photos face recognition was uh, calling a monkey for some races. Like it's unbelievable that some some AI system went into production and went into deployment without actually testing. It's more than that 2 percent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it, yeah. it's not even like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean. If you look back, there are like very funny examples of how AI systems went bad in deployment. Uh, but that's when uh, the decision makers should be aware when they are taking a research product and trying to put it on in deployment. Look at all those edge cases, look at the data, look at the distribution, look at the generalizability, look at the representativeness, like look at all of them to actually make sure that like, OK, this is like very thoroughly evaluated uh, proven, um, tested on diverse populations. The data is like super nicely prepared without any biases, et cetera, then going to production, going to deployment. Interesting. So is, is there a way to put parameters on, on, on algorithms? So con conceptually, like to me, the algorithm continues to learn and gets better and, evolves, so to speak. And so is there a way to put parameters on it that it has a limit as to how far it can grow or how far it can go? Or do we got some rails on these things? Or are we just setting these algorithms loose and letting <laughs> them run wild? <laughs> no, I mean, of course, you can control your algorithms, you can control your deep learning systems about what they can. Um, represent, uh, but it's not that, so control is something that we can discuss. What is control, right? Like, um, for example, when those generative models are learning things, there is a space called latent space, and that is um, where all the data distribution is uh, reflected in a way that the important features are there. 
So um, if if we take all the humans, let's say, like for deepfakes, for example, if we take all the human faces and in the Latin space, probably it will be something like, okay, uh, blonde, 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 brownish, 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 black, 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 black hair, for example. And that is like how the Latin space distribution is, is there in that, in that very high dimensional space. But if you um, want to control that derivation, um, early generative adversarial networks didn't have that. It was just one space. You just traverse that space. You don't know how to create blunt from um, uh, which direction to go from blunt to get the black hair. You may go in a direction and get a person with glasses. You don't know. <laughs> um, but then came the conditional GANs. Uh, then came more like style-aware GANs, more... Um, uh, more control came so that like now we can manipulate the head pose, we can manipulate the age, we can say, okay, this is like... In so this is the GANs you referred to earlier right. in the conversation that really allowed this to take off. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So gotcha. those different systems actually uh, help us control uh, navigation in the Latin space, kind of. Um, so you may... Like in maybe in deployment, you may say that, okay, if it is like getting um, a, like never generate a person with eyeglasses because that is out of domain, for example, or like have all your samples from, um, I don't know, from age up to this, because this is what we want the generation to be. Um, but on the other hand, to reach out to the data that you don't see in your distribution a lot is much harder. So limiting is easier. Going beyond what you have seen is harder. Like if you are trying to classify all the birds in the world and there is one species with just one sample and you maybe the, 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 the system didn't even see it. So how do we actually classify that bird, right? So that is kind of called the long tail distribution. And AI systems are known to be a little bit bad in that situation because they don't, they see, they don't see those samples frequently. And because of that, they don't learn those samples frequently. So both for um, analysis systems like detection, recognition, classification, and for generative systems like the synthesis approaches we talked about, um, that um, lack of samples or class imbalance uh, is actually a problem that, that, um, that is also a problem for deployment because when you try to generalize those models, they don't cover the whole population. They don't cover, cover the whole possible set of samples in the world. So how do you compensate for that? Or there are some there are some approaches nowadays like being um, um, being developed about like those um, long tail distributions to have uh, kind of balanced uh, uh, sets. Um, so some data augmentation techniques. Some um, so tweaking the numbers a bit. Giving more exposure to those rare cases. Yes. Or? yes. So, so yeah, the data augmentation techniques are doing the, exactly what you said. Okay. Uh, but there are also some uh, different systems that different like AI models that can uh, intrinsically um, have some class imbalance because of the weights, because of the um, dynamic uh, adaptation of the network. So there are other systems that are trying to solve that issue. Interesting. Interesting. So. 
You had you mentioned earlier about driving cars and trusting the AI. You also have uh, some experience with mapping and satellite uh, sure. technology or something to that effect um, in, in modeling the, the the satellite images. Can we trust this AI? Like, can we really trust it? I'm I'm I have to admit that I'm I'm usually uh, I want to see something be used for for a while before I adopt it and I'm a little bit of a control freak so I'm a little bit concerned about you know I love the idea of being able to freely work while I'm driving down the road and really use that time because right. it's a terrible waste but I'm also sort of terrified about just not paying attention to what's going on on the road and just turning it over to a computer to navigate me there seems a little scary right um I am so for autonomous driving, I am more concerned about um, non-technical systems than technical systems. Um, <laughs> let me elaborate that. So in this world where, um, where like legislation and all that stuff is not aware of the technical details and cannot understand the technical details of those systems, like putting the blame and putting the responsibility on where in that complicated human AI world of autonomous driving is making me more concerned than the actual actual AI system being trustworthy. So if, for example, um, so for, for some of the um, level um, three, four, I don't know, level three or four systems, um, it, it's like user opts in, says that, okay, like now in this highway, we are going autonomously, but like it is opt in. So I am aware that I should be still awake and engaged right. and etc. cetera, right? Um, but if people doesn't understand that it is not fully trustable right now, they should still look at the road, they should not sleep. Sure. Then like, how do you even deployed is like I they know that they it's opt-in but you cannot actually trust everyone to understand that they should still be babysitting that wheel like they cannot sleep you know then in that case for example like uh, when something happens who is to blame okay if it's opt-in then, then the driver is to blame but in, yeah. in like next iteration then um, maybe there are two the autonomous uh, cars and some like pedestrian and in those complex systems I I I I cannot be fully secure, as you said, um, if I don't know exactly who to blame and who is, has the responsibility. And when this is not cleared by laws and like certain, maybe even cyber laws in yeah. that in that sense, you know. And um, both in that case, in, in in that context, and in other contexts, like the laws around AI are so vague in general that I am still like, um, yeah, I, I have my wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could we eventually get to a point where it's, uh, you know, people don't drive anymore? There's just these automated, I mean, it could... Could it get to that point technology-wise where we just get in something, tell us, to, we say where we want to go and it, it takes us there and it's completely automated out of our control? Like we just don't even have the option to be paying attention? Like there's not even a steering wheel like in a movie or something? I mean, could could we actually get to that point or, or are we always going to need to keep an eye, you know, one eye open, so to speak? Hopefully. Um, but, I mean, just look at, um, uh, airplanes. I mean, 
I'm still amazed that they fly in the sky, to be <laughs> honest. It seems ridiculous. This, they weigh out these big chunks of metal, and we just force fuel through these engines and hope that we keep going fast enough to stay in the air currents. It's amazing. Right. And, like, there is much less traffic. It is much, uh, much more safer than actually driving on a road. And they have autopilots for years or decades maybe right and there's still the um, uh, collective and there's still like the actual like human intervention there um, it's not That's going true. fully autopilot at anyway so I I still believe that like in any case there will be that emergency um, interruption possible with the human because I don't think Again, like going to that uh, long tail distribution, right? I don't think it is really immediately possible that AI systems will sample all possible road conditions in all possible weather conditions in all possible pedestrian interceptions and like all of those. Um, at won't be possible for those AI systems to learn from, to sample from. So there will always be that edge case where AI doesn't know what to do, but human knows what to do, at, at least like something to do. And in that case, they will need that emergency wheel or something. Um, even for, um, yeah, for, yeah, even for like, um, so, you know, as I said, data augmentation, one way is to teach those AI systems is actually simulations, right? So um, for autonomous driving, there are like very realistic simulators that, uh, that are trying to sample all of them. And um, you cannot kill a child that is running on the street uh, behind a ball in real life. But in simulation, <laughs> you can like simulate that over and over and over so and nothing teach, happens. So you could teach the AI exactly. through a simulation. Exactly. And that goes back, like that is a loop, right? That goes back, like how much um, realistically we can simulate real world. How can yeah. we render us? It is how, a loop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we went back to the 3D reconstruction yeah. and yeah. Yeah, 100%. You also touched on something else about our leadership having trouble understanding technology. Because, and it's so frustrating to me that it feels like our leadership is as old as it has ever been. And, you know, I have 60, 70, 80 year old people that I know. They don't understand anything about this stuff. I mean, they know how to log into Facebook and, and re read gossip on Facebook. You know, that's mainly what they know how to do. They don't understand. They would never be able to understand laws and how to craft laws around this right. kind of technology. And I get the same impression from our elected officials when I hear them speak about it. Like, I admit that I don't know about it. Um they're literally crafting, you know, the 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 how it's going to be handled in the future. And I don't get the impression that many of them fully understand it. What is there anything that you that that the you know, that industry is doing to educate them or are there, no. you know, not to get political, but. Is the industry as a whole maybe, you know, looking at, hey, we need to support candidates that are going to, like, understand this and, like, really, you know, get it and, and craft good legislation around it? Yeah, um, that's a 
I, I believe that's a correct like observation. Like I remember a couple of days ago, I, 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 I saw someone in a court environment saying, oh, those logarithmic things. But he was trying to say algorithmic, I guess, because he was like <laughs> referring to algorithms, but he doesn't even know algorithm, logarithm, like, you know, like, yeah, that's unbelievable. Um, anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, they, I mean, it, if you want to say something about technology or some say something about a domain that you don't know, there's always people that you can consult to. And even in low domain, I know their like major is not deep learning and etc. But there are like very like bright new generation lawyers that uh, we actually get uh, the chance to collaborate in in a program in UCLA, and um, they actually know the details. Like they may they may not be able to like develop a deep learning system, but they know uh, what harm can it cause. They know um, how data sheets work. They know how um, something is applicable to whole generation versus some kind of population, or how the impact is evaluated, etc how the accuracy is impacting. And you can just like consult to those lawyers or those law people that are speaking both languages, like both technical details and translate them into the actual legislative uh, space that they, they are used to. And it doesn't matter like if you are old or like um, if you don't have experience you can always find those people and consult with them and I think like the next generation cyber laws should be definitely um, um, written and developed and like created with those individuals where they can speak the both worlds and they know who to consult to like if there's something deep fake related if there's something i don't know like um ai related they know who to go and say like there are many professors that are working at consultants etc etc so um i like it it may be acceptable if they don't know but it is not acceptable if they assume that they know or if they talk without even realizing that they don't know. So, yeah. Well, you're more forgiving than I am. <laughs> if my, my philosophy on it sort of is, is that if you're going to vote on something, you have a responsibility to kind of understand what you're voting on, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I see that as a problem because they don't know how to handle, you know, what in comparison to something like deep learning, you know, and, and misinformation and, and social media, like they just have such a, a hard time grasping these these concepts and how they um, how they are used, although they seem to be very good at, at using them themselves. Um, so. Talk to me a little bit about the satellite imagery, because that is something that I can remember many years ago now when Google Earth first became a thing and you could zoom in on something <laughs> and see it. And it was so neat. And, and you know, you could kind of look all over the world that way. How has this technology like really advanced so quickly? Again, is it all just going back to, you know, AI that's that's developing this or like how how does how is it so accurate now? Um, so there are different um different branches in satellite image processing. So for for example, for, for Google Earth and for um, like 3D reconstructed version of, of Google, uh, Google Earth, um, that is, again, we are going 3D reconstruction, but um, that is um, 
both a combination of 3D uh, vision and um, deep learning. Um, so back in the day when I was doing my PhD, for example, um, we were still working on generative models, but they were not deep generative models. So there are procedural models, inverse procedural model models, etc., where we can uh, create an algorithmic way of uh, building new 3D worlds, just like in Google Earth. And in that case, um, when we compared our like traditional generative models versus versus 3D reconstructed version of Google Earth, um, it was much more better because we, we captured much more details. It was much more um, diverse and visually it was like much higher quality. Whereas you can, you whereas Google Earth just like um, um, maybe uh, copied and pasted uh, yeah. some polygons on yeah. top of imagery, etc. But now that there is deep learning, like the, these 3D reconstruction systems are also uh, getting much, much better. Um, and with the satellite imagery, for example, there is like um, super resolution, right? Like if the satellite imagery resolution is bad, you can actually apply super resolution to satellite imagery to have it much more higher resolution. Why wouldn't you always use super resolution? <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, then you can reconstruct, etc. So the satellite image processing that we did actually um, was a little bit more on the generative side, but still on the two D side, as we were trying to extract maps from satellite imagery. And um, for um, for US um, uh, for US or for European countries, uh, when you look at a satellite imagery, you can say that, oh, okay, this is a, a road, this is some, like, I don't know, a market, this is some house, this is an intersection, etc. Now, we're not talking about just Google Earth at this point or something like that. Any we're talking imagery. about like any satellite, your right. Garmin, your roadmap, your, your navigation in your car or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, for 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 like um, developed countries, you can see that, right? For developing countries, though, you can look at the satellite imagery and you cannot distinguish. You can see some pattern that may look like houses, uh, but they are very small. You don't know whether they are houses or some rocks. For roads, there is just some gradient. You cannot even say that whether that's a road or not. For intersections, it's, it looks like a scratch on the on the oh, image. Wow. So for those uh, for for those type of satellite imagery, we actually developed a deep learning system to extract the maps from those very like um, low quality uh, images and. And then we uh, impose a generative addressing system on top of those maps because it's not that the, um, the structure is bad in those areas, but there are actually no addresses. So we are very much used to addresses here. Right? Yeah. Like here is like 900 uh, Apple Street, something like that, right? In those countries, there is no street address. The whole address that goes to your Amazon package is um, take the market, uh, see the market, take the second right from the market, the third street on the left, take that street and the house on the left with uh, yellow windows. <laughs> that is your address. Your voting is based on that address. Oh, your economic wow. income is based on that address. Your package's mail is based on now, that address. Now, what kind of countries are what countries are we talking about here? For example, um, some places in India. India. Um, yeah, we we had uh, more remote places. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, uh, I mean, 
um, in the in the data set description, we actually wrote those places, but I don't remember right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, you can look at the data set description. Of course. <laughs> um, so um, for those places, um, after we extract the roads from the satellite imagery, um, we apply a generative approach to extract an address for every five meter by five meter. So every five meter by five meter, you have an address uh, with a, a block number. Mm. Block name, street name, just like a grid, and region. Exactly, not like a grid because um, then you can use latitude, longitude, right? Like right, you know, right, meter right, right. roads. Um, but this grid is like you can you can imagine a grid along all the streets. Gotcha. So when I say hundred A um, as the block number and block name, it means I'm at the hundred meter on the street and a distance from the road. And that's like the, the, the first field. The second field is the um, road name, which is, let's say, N, N, um, NK13. NK means north of the downtown and K, um, approximately K distance from the downtown. So um, how we come up with that is um, looking at the traditional addressing systems. So in London, there is something called London Postal Code. Right. In London Postal Code, the downtown is some special postal code. Then there is that spiral looking thing, um, like North NA, NB, NC, then like SA on the, on the south, SA, SB, SC. And the more you go away from the downtown, the second letter increases and the first letter is like south, north, east, west. So we took the same thing and applied in that generative algorithm, um, saying that if we are on the like, uh, and we chose the down, we don't know where is the downtown, but we we chose the downtown as the densest roads, which is correct for most of places. Yeah, pretty accurate, right? Yeah. So the dance, the region with the densest road is the downtown. Then the region that is north of it, the NA, MB, and C. So that is the first part of the street name. The second part of the street name is. Similar to what we have like uh, in many cities, it's like events for um, um, the most dominant direction and odds for the second dominant direction. Most mostly they are like uh, uh, perpendicular to each other. So NK thirteen means north of the downtown, K distance from the downtown, and it is a um, it is an east westbound road. 13th road is east westbound. So the the next is like if we have the city name city name and the country sure. name. Yeah, so that is a generative adjusting system that we based on just satellite imagery for those areas. And what is better is that, I will, I'm sorry, I'm explaining too much, but- Nah, feel free. <laughs> um, we actually deployed this in a developing, in a town, in a developing country, and they actually used our addresses. They have signs with our addresses. That's awesome. Yes, and um, um, the postman, the, the delivery, um, People probably loves you now. <laughs> <laughs> we look, they, they, we measured their uh, arrival times using the old addresses and using the new addresses. And um, on the average, we had twenty one percent increase in arrival time when you use when they used our addresses versus the old addresses, including the training time. So including that. Um, understanding and like uh, internalizing what I just said about like NK thirteen blah blah. Right. In, in, including that training time, they were 21% uh, faster. Wow. So how quickly this whole process that you just described, 
How quickly does this occur? Is this something that can, are we close to this happening in like real time or does this take quite a bit of time to, to manifest? Um, training time was, um, first we trained on like a good data set that we sampled from those places. And we can consider that offline because now like the more satellite imagery we get, we like fine tune the model. We retrain, but we fine tune the model. So it's not um, retraining from scratch at every time. But at that time we needed to like train it for maybe weeks, like couple of weeks on, okay. on that initial data. Uh, but after that, you don't wait for weeks for, for any any place. Uh. So um, we actually, um, like uh, my lovely team, I, I, I really, uh, remember and say hello to all of them um, they actually um, uh, developed that web UI so it's like Google Maps you can write your generative address and it points like where it is or like you can click somewhere on the map and the generative address, address pops up so that was like how um, all those people on the road was able to like uh, uh, use our addresses I see. Uh, they even like built a mobile app for those delivery uh, people <laughs> so on the mobile app you can see our addresses just like Google Maps you can see our addresses and navigate through like that yeah, interesting. As we as we start to wind down here a little bit, I I, I want to kind of gauge you on. Uh, I'm I'm kind of intrigued by Elon Musk and some of his endeavors. From from someone who's way smarter than myself, you sitting here in front of me, especially on these sorts of things. Um, what is what are your thoughts about his his Neuralink uh, system. Are we, and because I'm imagining that it's some, that AI will also play a pretty large role in that development. And to, that's like really an, a continued, you know, we think about augmenting and we all walk around with phones now. We're already like voluntarily augmenting ourselves, so to speak. But I think that really starts to take it to the next level when we can literally kind of plug in and, you know, communicate through thought. Yeah. Um, Is this realistic? <laughs> to be honest, like, um, if you look back, there were many hypotheses that um, he assumed will be real and happen and didn't happen. And um, personally, I really do not appreciate some of the um, environments he creates, um, all the way from like, I don't know, the um, in work context or in like in scientific context and um, the things he support and doesn't support for scientific development. Um, so I would, I, I personally, I, I learned to not pay attention to what he's saying. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, he's definitely become uh, more and more controversial. He's become yeah. more outspoken. I, I you know, it's a, it could be a double-edged thing. We'll see, I guess, how that all plays out for him. Um, but yeah, so what is what is on the horizon? What should we be on the lookout for next as 
consumers, as just people in this earth trying to make our way around? Like, what should we be on the lookout for as, as the next tech uh, development coming out of your fields? All right. So Is definitely it inter entertainment, hopefully something good. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, definitely be on the lookout for deep fakes and how you can like um, detect deep fakes in a more accessible way. Um, don't trust what you see. Yeah. Don't trust what you read. Um, then uh, in the VR world, for example, um, if you are interested in seeing those digital humans and have um, everything in a 10,000 square foot, dome is reconstructed in 3D. Um, it, there are many, um, there are several uh, VR and AR shorts from Intel Studios. Um, so last year, two of them premiered in Venice Film Festival. One of them is here. One of them is Queer Skins Arc. Uh, uh, I think that was the name. Is that the one here? <laughs> huh? Is that the one that's here? Um, so there are two of them. One is here. Uh, here we are. Um, here we are, I okay. guess. <laughs> um, and the other one is Queer Skins Arc Blood and Chocolate. I guess that was the name I'm, if I'm not for, uh, forgetting. Um, so both of them actually came from, uh, they were shot from, uh, shot in uh, um, uh, Intel Studios um, in that big um, um, uh, um, 3D reconstruction dome. Um, and there's also Soul and Science, which is the first AR short series. Um, do you know John Brancos? No. You don't need to. <laughs> I didn't know him either. <laughs> uh, but there is that famous sports uh, sports series called Soul and Science. So he's um, explaining the physics behind all of those um, basketball players uh. or like, I don't know, tennis players or jugglers or, you know, all of these. And we actually shot them in the studio. So, um, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so people are like, uh, for example, uh, jumping very high on pogo sticks and it is like 3D capture. So it's not animated or simulated anything like that. It's like real world. And uh, it is an AR series. So you can actually shoot it into your table and see them jumping on your table, for example. And John Brancos is actually explaining all the physics behind that. So that is an AR series and it has episodes and et cetera. So you can also watch that. So you're telling me right now that I could, I could have this they have a device that I can beam the show right here in the middle of the table and it'll just show it in 3D? In your phone, there is already an app. In my You can phone. do that and see in your phone, like you're the table, you, you see the table and you see like everyone uh, jumping so, there. So like the Pokemon sort of yeah, technology. Yeah, that's AR, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting. So another question that i wanted to ask you because i feel like we need more people that are doing real contributions to science and technology what would you um what advice would you give somebody that's considering you know going into the world of computer science or this this these fields that you specialize in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um if they are interested in that. Um, I would say, like, if if they are really interested in building such systems, I would say know the theory behind it, know the math behind it, know the statistics behind it, know data science behind it, and then build upon it. Because if you are just like fresh saying, oh, I want to do AI, there is some code there, I will run that code and apply it to this. And then 
eventually you will not get what you want at some point and you will get frustrated saying, okay, this doesn't work. I can't do it. I'm leaving. <laughs> so instead of doing that, like give yourself a chance by understanding the actual theory behind it. You may not, you may not go all the way deep into like what is the beginning of the universe <laughs> but just understand the actual like uh like linear algebra that the tensor arithmetics behind it and understand how you can have control over that and then also understand what are the what are, how um, what is the bias in data what is the bias in a system but how we can actually um build systems that are more representative, that are more generalizable, etc. So in that case, if you really want to do some real world impact, uh, when you go all the way to the deployment, you will also have those in mind instead of like, oh, I built something, it is there. Like, you know, um, you can do that too, but yeah. I hope no one deploys it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned something else there that made me, that made me think and it made me uh, touch on something else that that I find interesting, even though it probably will never affect me. And that is, can AI be used to answer the question of what will happen to our expanding universe? Are we going to go cold? Are we going <coughs> to bless you? Really sorry. Uh, no, all good. Um, are we, are we going to expand until we go cold? Are we going to retract and snap like a rubber band? Can AI give us this answer so we know how to what to expect for the end of humanity. So I will uh, just point you back into our conversation about how AI works, right? It sees data, it processes data, it does decisions based on that data. Do you think that any AI systems right now currently have all those possible data samples that can lead us to the next step in future so that they can decide. I don't think such a large scale, multi-model, multi-domain uh, AI system is right now. Like all the AI systems are based on one task, right? Yeah. Like based on navigation, based on driving, based on, I don't know, uh, facial recognition, based on um, 3D reconstruction. So all of those AI systems are focusing on one or maybe two tasks. Like maybe if they are multi-model, sure. they are looking at both your voice and your face, for example. But like no AI model is so comprehensive that it is like getting all that possible multi-model, multi-domain contextual data and trying to make a decision like that. Yeah. Well, even as you're saying that, it makes me think that it would probably say that we would expand into coldness because that would be all the data that we have up to this point is that we're expanding. So um, you mentioned the bi the facial recognition. Um, is there anything, you know, I see countries, um, you know, some countries that are using facial recognition and really kind of. Uh, implementing that as part of their society. Um, is this something that we, I don't know, I don't want to put you in a, a difficult political kind of question, but this is sort of concerning to me because the technology keeps getting better and the ability to recognize faces. And I guess there's that philosophy that if, well, if you're not doing anything bad, there's nothing for you to hide. What does it matter? But then there's also a lot of people, I think, that that have this feeling that, you know, I don't like to be watched all the time either, mm -hmm. just just because like, you know, and so 
is there a way that we that we can that the technology will continue to be you know to evolve and get better because it can be used in so many good ways without uh, it being used as a as a surveillance tool against us or is this in your kind of opinion maybe just sort of inevitable because it's you know, like you said, it's oftentimes to the ones that are in power or, or you know, exactly. to, to just make these decisions. Exactly. So, as I said before, like, um, who makes these decisions? Who deploys these systems? And what is the purpose of those people that are deploying those systems? And, for example, like... Um, very simple example probably everyone can think of is that um, assume that you have some police station um, that is racist and saying that all the um, uh, African-Americans that are coming to this police station are actually uh, have been involved in a crime. And I'm not saying anywhere is like that. I'm just giving an example. Imagine a police station is I'm like that. I'm saying there's places probably like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be politically uh, correct. Anyway, um, so the data that is collected in that station will be because people like because that is the assumption. Like, oh, this is a um, uh, uh, African American one uh, uh, is is. Uh, um, is guilty, uh, Af uh, African American, American too, guilty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So your data will be like that because the people that are processing the data there is like that. And then if you deploy this system as an AI system somewhere, it will continue the continue the exact same bias that was fed into that system. Of course. So now the only reason using this ai system will be like see it's not human deciding it's the ai deciding that you are a criminal no absolutely no i mean do you see that so yeah. like why like sometimes those ai systems are just to put the blame on something uh because it's not going no one is going deeper about what was the data how was it in, uh, how was it fed how was the system uh, developed etc so if no one goes deeper it will be always the case that oh yeah sure like humans were making bad decisions now ai ai, AI is making those decisions so those decisions can't be bad right right well, you said something that really resonates with me in, in this day and time, and that is digging a little deeper into, you know, not just, you know, reading the surface level uh, headline or information and kind of really seeing what was the root cause of it or where that source came from, because exactly. that has so much and, and it's it is so easy to get it all misconstrued in today's time. I know, you know, for myself, like I'm. I think I'm a fairly logical and reasonable and f somewhat intelligent person, but it's still tough to, you know, go through and uh, dissect all of the information and mm -hmm. figure out what's uh, what's a reliable source, what's not a reliable source. But I think it's it's very important if we want to get to the to the true understanding of how to how to make better decisions based off of this technology. Exactly, exactly. And again, like. Um, as I said, like data sheets, for example, um, even if as uh, normal, like if if like no, we can't expect normal public to go dig deeper on those AI systems. <laughs> right. But if there is like that human readable sheet in front of you saying that this AI system is deployed by 
that police station that always prepared the data like this, then the human can understand, like the public can understand that, oh, wait, like if that was always the case in that actual data, then how do you build this AI system on top of that bad data? Well, who is the person that plays that role? Who, who is the person that says that monitors that data, I guess, is the question. Exactly. Exactly. Who gathers the data? Who prepares the data? Yeah. Um, is the data distribution representative enough? Um, and that's why, like, before deployment, those AI systems should be regula regulated based on those properties. And I just mentioned a few of them. Like, in those data sheets, there are many of them, like the reason, the distribution, the representativeness, et cetera. So, um, any, like, there, there should be, like, I don't know, uh, you know, like, whenever... There are standards in this world for other things like quality standards and like ethical standards, etc. For non like AI related things, right? We hope. <laughs> yeah, there should be such standards in AI systems too. And before um, before uh, deploying that AI system, it will have that I don't know um, some ethical standard certification because some person that knows the AI systems and their policies actually went there and checked all of those items and saw that AI systems is uh, as it should be, then there is that watermark and go. That that should be like it. Like it you can't like not all the companies building all AI systems should go into production immediately after all that bad bias in data. So it sounds like our AI will be as uh, fair to us as the people who control it. Exactly. <laughs> That's uh... also as 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 uh, as careful or as careless as <laughs> those people. Very true. Very true. Well, I I want to be uh, cautious of your time. I, I know you. I really appreciate you taking taking time to chat with me. Um, it's been definitely a learning experience. Our conversation um, makes me think about some things a little bit differently, for sure. And I hope other people, you know, will think about things a little differently and pay attention to this because I think most people don't realize how important this is to the world around us and how mm -hmm. everything is evolving. And you know. Uh, you know, even as things move into the future, you know, uh, you know, longevity and, and, you know, nanobot technology and, and all these sorts of things, uh, you know, I'm sure AI will play a role in all that, you know, long after we're no longer here on Earth as well, you know, and it's another generation. And so I just think it's uh, something that everybody needs to consider and as, as they move forward. I appreciate you, you being here. Where can people find you online and, and learn more about all of this uh, wonderful world? Um, they can check my website, uh, ilkedemir.github.io, I-L-K-E-D-E-M-I-R.github.io. Um, they can see, like, if they are more interested, they can reach out to me and talk about deepfakes. They, if they are building such systems, AI systems in general, like, we can talk about it, whether, like, they, their fallacies or their improvement or how they should even evaluate that. Um, if they are interested in those, like, AR, VR and 3D reconstruction and uh, digital humans, they can, again, reach out to me and uh, we can collaborate. And 
other than that, I hope um, in near future, the deepfake detector, the real-time deepfake detector will be online and they can also find it on my website when it is online, hopefully. Um, so that like the next time they see Obama saying really bad things, they will just like, oh, like I will ask fake catcher whether it is correct or not, uh, whether it is real or not. So they will use fake catcher for that. Um, so yeah, that's that. Awesome. I think that will be wildly popular when it's, when it's out. Hopefully, thank you. Yeah, yeah. One last question. Sure. Do you have a favorite video game? Yes. How do you know? <laughs> yeah, I play Dota. Alta. Dota. Dota. Yeah, defense of the of the ancients. Ah, interesting. Is that an uh, on? It's an online game. Yeah. It is. Yes. All real gamers play online, don't they? <laughs> online. Yeah. It is five versus five. Um, there are two sides, Dire and Radiant, and they clash. And I have been playing it since high school, I guess. Ah, yeah. Interesting. Loyal Dota player here. Nice, nice. All my, all my, to all my um, fellow female Dota players, hang up there. I know the, I know the player base <laughs> is toxic, but you are not alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I had to ask. You know, coming coming from your background, I, I had to ask if there was an awesome video game out there that would be worth uh, worth checking out. I've, yeah, I've had to limit them over over the years. I, I'm, I have a very addictive personality, and when I start, I can't put it down. And I find that's a real problem. So oh. I limit my time with such <laughs> such things. But well, if you are more like a like a regular video game, like a first like a alone uh, just playing like a, like mm. adventure games, etc., I would say Dreamfall. Dreamfall. Okay. Dreamfall is my all time favorite, story wise, graphic wise. Like even when it, when it was back in two thousand seven, I guess. Um, like uh, there are different chapters. Like the last one is like uh, I guess two years old, three years old right now. But okay. the previous ones, um, like at any time, it was always my favorite. So if you haven't tried, try Dreamfall. Nice, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so Likewise. much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for joining another episode of the Evolved Idiots. If you like the content, please like, subscribe, follow, do all those things wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you watch podcasts, look for us there, Evolved Idiots, um, literally wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're looking for video, especially uncensored video, you can check us out on Odyssey or Rumble. Otherwise, uh, we're also on YouTube. Until next time. Peace out to the people of the planet Earth. Later.